1961, the world was introduced to a new phenomenon of something called a, telev- a televised courtroom trial. And the trial was that of Adolf Eichmann, who was a Nazi SS lieutenant who had been caught and was tried in Jerusalem. And Eichmann, of course, was being tried for the war crimes uh, against the Jewish people during World War II. And the trial, for the first time, any other trial was broadcast across the world. And so televised courtroom trials are a part of our American culture. Think about it. From Jeffrey Dahmer to Ted Bundy, from Casey Anthony to Scott Peterson, O.J. Simpson to Martha Stewart, Michael Jackson to Conrad Murray. We are a culture that's obsessed with these high-profile cases, and we have the opportunity to, to watch them. And we love courtroom drama, both the real and the fictitious. Think of how many shows are based on the courtroom. Law and Order has like 30 billion Law and Orders. Law and Order, Law and Order SU, Law and Order like Toronto, Law and Order Clayton. I don't know how many they come up with. How to Get Away with Murder is like one of the biggest shows on television right now. Uh, and, and then think of the old ones. Think of, think of the old shows like Perry Mason and Matlock and all those classic shows. And not just that, but think of how many movies are based around courtrooms. Uh, Twelve Angry Men, To Kill a Mockingbird, In the Name of the Father, A Few Good Men, Philadelphia, The Firm. All these are based around the courtroom. Courtroom drama is a part of our culture. And our scene from our scripture this morning is going to be a bit of courtroom drama. Except it's going to be a courtroom that takes place uh, 2,750 years ago. And it's not a trial with a human juror and a human... courtroom full of people, but it is in fact going to be God that's going to be standing as judge. The jury is going to be the mountains and the hills of the earth, and the people on trial are going to be the people of God, Israel. So take a, book, uh, take a look at the book of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, and if you're actually turning in your actual physical Bible, here's a good navigating point. Go to the Gospel of Matthew and turn left, <laughs> and you're going to go through a couple books. You're going to pass by Malachi, Zechariah. When you get through the book of Nahum, you know you're getting kind of close. Micah is part of the Hebrew scriptures we know as the minor prophets, extending all the way back to the time of Samuel, who we encountered for seven months. I know many of you are still saying, thank God we're done with First and Second Samuel. You don't have to say it again. Uh, but Micah uh, is extending this tradition that began with Samuel. He's a prophet. A prophet had a job. Uh, when we think of prophet, we think of somebody who's forecasting coming doom. No, a prophet's primary job was to speak truth, even when it was the most unpopular thing to do. And that's what Micah is going to do. Micah is going to speak truth to the people of Israel in a way that they do not want to hear. And it's going to be set up in such a way that it's going to be like a trial that's taking place. And so the minor prophets of the Bible, uh, they take place in a difficult period in Israel's history because it takes place before, during, and after the Babylonian exile and the captivity of Assyria. And so this is a difficult time. So what is Israel being judged on? We'll take a look at Micah chapter 6 verse 1. It says, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusations. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? Have, how have I burdened you? Answer me. 
I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you out of the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you also, Aaron and Miriam. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So why is Micah not a popular person? Well, he's about to proclaim to Israel, you're standing on trial before God. And the mountains and the hills, may they hear the accusation God has against his people. What is the lawsuit that's taking place? Well, clearly the people of Israel have done something wrong against God. What is the accusation? The accusation is they have broken a contract. A covenant, if you will. You see, Israel made a covenant with God long, way back with Abraham, and was renewed from person to person to person. And the covenant was this, that they would be God's chosen people. That they would receive the prosperity and blessing of being God's chosen ones on earth. So many bells and whistles come with this. And what Israel had to do was they were to be God's beacon of light and hope and justice in the world. And so what we're going to learn is that Israel, time and time again, has broken this covenant with God, and God has had enough of it. Did you catch the tone of God in verse 3? It says, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you or worried you? God is so dumbfounded by what Israel is doing in this moment that he has Micah recall the story of God with the people of God. He's like, don't you remember? I was the one that brought you out of Egypt. You were slaves and I brought you to this place. And it's not just a story of what's happened in the past, but God is bringing up current events. He's bringing up names and people that they would recall saying to them, I continue to keep my end of the bargain, but Israel has forgotten all that God has done for them. And it's clear by the breaking of this covenant what they have done. You might have run into this when you were a kid. you ever hear this line from your parents? You have selected memory. Or you hear what you want to hear. We get in trouble and we're left with the evidence surrounding and you say, Mom and Dad, I have no idea where this stuff came from. There was never an incident with me and my uh, two brothers with, you know, fireworks on the trampoline, something involving super glue. And human flesh, you know, nothing that we would have gotten in trouble. We were cherished, beloved children. And it's amazing how we forget where we've come from. And it's amazing how we forget who brought us there. How often do we receive the blessings of God, but respond with keeping God out of our success, out of the prosperity that we've received? And like Israel, we all too often want the perks of the journey with God, but we don't want the way of following in the way of God. And that's why Israel stands trial. They stand trial because they've received the benefits of God. God has given his end of the covenant, yet they continue to break their end of the covenant. And how does Israel respond? They're going to respond in the most natural way that many religious people do. Look at what it says in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams and the ten thousands rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body, of the sin of my soul? What I want you to hear as we hear these verses is this. You need to look at this through the frame of, yeah, but. (laughs) 
see, God is bringing these accusations against the people of Israel, but they're saying, yeah, yeah, but, but God, yeah, but, but, but what about these things? God, look, we've offered endless amounts of sacrifices to you. There is a, a river of olive oil that we have come to bless you with. God, yeah, but we might have done these things, but look at all these things we've done for you. And that's what Israel is misunderstanding. They think that God thinks that that worship is all that God desires, that all God desires from us is is sacrifice and offerings and, and different types of worships. And so this is what religious people do. Religious people think that there is a right way of doing worship, a right way to live out a command, a a religious thing that we can say and do in order to make up for the fact that our lives don't actually reflect the person we claim we worship and follow. And we do this, don't we? Our lives look completely different, but we come on Sunday mornings. We tithe our 10% or, you know, like 3%, whatever's left after we pay all our bills. We, we give all the sacrifices to God we desire. And we wonder why our lives don't reflect God. That's Israel in this moment. And if God became flesh and walked among us, who experienced torture and death on a cross so that we can just have a system of religious beliefs, so that God can be this compartmentalized thing in our life that doesn't reflect the rest of our life, I think we've gotten this Jesus thing wrong. And so did Israel. Israel thought that they could offer God these acts of worship, yet their lives would look completely different and that God would be pleased in these things. Amos even goes as far as saying um, the prophet that God hates, God loathes worthless worship. And so the message of Micah is simple. Worship is meaningless when our lives contradict the way of God. So what is it that God desires? Well, look at what it says in verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy. To walk humbly with your God. Justice. That should be easy, right? We live in a country that penned the phrase, truth, justice, in the American way. Actually, that came from Superman later today, out of the American way. We're in a country of justice, right? Every day, criminals are, are put away that have committed terrible crimes. We take people, we deport people if they came into this country illegally. We hunt down terrorists and we kill them. Is that justice? We just watch the news every single day and some sort of terrible act is committed and we seek vengeance against that person. And doesn't it fill us with fury when some sort of terrible act is committed? Doesn't it does justice bellow from the depths of who you are? Don't you just want to see holy justice come down on those criminals, on those heretics, on those wrongdoers? But is, is that justice? Is that justice? And then we have justice that takes place every single day of our life. That guy that cuts you off in traffic, you just have justice is served like he gets a ticket. Or secretly you want him going to the guardrail. <laughs> that waitress that you have that didn't get your order right, that isn't filling your Diet Coke the way you want it to, you, you have in mind to have justice. You're going to tell her boss about it. You're definitely not going to tip her. Maybe she'll even get fired because of this severe injustice in your life. He's fooling around his wife. He deserves to lose his kids and his house. She abused me for far too long. She's getting what's coming to her. Hurt me, talk about me behind my back, inconvenience me, let me not win, and I will pay you with more justice than you can ever expect. We like to practice justice every single day. But is that justice? 
You see, that form of justice doesn't really hold up what Jesus said when he said, I tell you, you have heard it said an eye for an eye, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on one cheek, you turn the other also. So how does justice fit in with that? So if this isn't justice, what is justice? This is the words that Micah says here. The word justice is the Hebrew word mishpat. It appears in Scripture over 403 times. Translation, that's a lot. In the book of Micah that we're reading, in the book of Isaiah that we'll get to next week, between those two prophets, it's used 47 different times. But what does justice mean? When we think justice, we think courtroom scenes, somebody's judgment coming down on that person. But that's not what the Hebrew word for justice means. We might define justice as uh, uh, an act of rewarding someone for doing something good and punishing those who are evil, but that's not the biblical word for justice. Mishpat is, is justice. It's ensuring that every single person has what they need. In a just society, the one who has needs, those needs are met. The equal access of goods and services in a society is good for all people. This might best define justice. Isaiah the prophet says that God declares justice as this. Is that not the fast I've chosen to loosen the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed free, to break every yoke? Is that not the sharing of your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see someone naked, you cover them, to not hide yourself from your own kin. This echoes the words of Jesus when he said, I have come to proclaim what? Good news to the poor. To recover sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to set the captive free. See, justice defined by God is an invitation to be sharers, to be builders of a richer and healthier community. So if that's justice, what is injustice? Well, let's learn what Israel's on trial. Look at verse 10. It says, am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house, and the short Ephan, which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales and the bags of false weights? Your rich people are violent. Your inhabitants are liars and their tongues speak deceitfully. You see, Israel entered into this covenant with God to be the, the recipients of God's blessing and prosperity in this world. Yet they broke the covenant again and again by committing injustices against their own society and the society around them. And it's simple. What, are their, what, is, what does Micah say? Well, let's ring up the list here. Extortion, corrupt business practices, cheating, dishonesty, violence and mistreatment of the poor, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And this isn't a small scale. We need to understand that when God is bringing this word through Micah, it's not because one or two people are doing it. It is a systemic system of injustice that's happening in Israel. It's a gaping wound of injustice. And Micah is so severe on this. This gives us a better picture of why Micah is preaching this message. Micah declares in chapter 3, he says, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? You who hate good and love evil, listen to this, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, who strip off their skin and break their bones into pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Do you think Israel has a small issue with injustice? It is a gaping wound of injustice. 
God's not going to stand for it. God's not going to let his so-called people live such unjust lives or unjust lives. And this isn't the first time the so-called people of God, religious people, have committed heinous acts of injustice. In the 4th century, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Woohoo! Persecution's gone, right? But with that... Now with the cross bared on the shield of Rome, this holy Christian Roman Empire continued to conquer foe after foe. And by the sword they said, convert or die. I'm going with conversion. I don't know about you. In the early Middle Ages, the European Christians began this serious military campaign we know as the Crusades. And the motto was to take back the Holy Land from the Muslims. We forget in church history a long way before they even got to the Holy Land. You know what these Christians, these so-called Christian army did? They slaughtered thousands of Jews in response to their acts in crucifying Christ. We can throw in there the Inquisition, which was a persecution of the Jews by the hand of Christians. The so-called Christian England that enforced the most unthinkable acts of apartheid in South Africa. And then this so-called Christian nation we know as the United States, bearing the banner of Christ, overcomes this land that is, that is used by the Native Americans, eventually forcing them into these small regions and annihilating their population. Lest we forget this so-called Christian nation has kept up the practices of slavery long after our European brothers outlawed it. And then the history of the South who said, you know what, you take our slaves away, we're going to fight you for it. May we recall the injustices of the Jim Crow laws, the treatment of the Islamic people in the days after 9-11. For a people who claim to be the nation of God, we sure have a lot of unjust practices that reflect the crimes charged against Israel in our text. And these heinous acts of injustice are not a thing of the past. They, they reared their ugly head, the kin of them today. In the most simplistic of ways. And we'll take the next eight weeks to look at these acts of injustice. But think about this. Think about the crimes against Israel compared to the modern kin today. 1% of the American population owns 90% of the wealth and receive tax breaks as a result of that. Yet a large portion of the American population works 40 plus hours a week at a wage where they're not even able to pay their bills. That's injustice. Every day, people who don't have the resources for a bank account are forced to use payday lenders to receive their paycheck. These lenders slam people with interest rates as high as 400%. And for every $100 transaction, they give a $22 fee and an 800% fee comes after that for every week that they don't pay them back. That's injustice. 20% of children in America live in poverty. 40% of African American children live in poverty. Every day, people are dying in this country of preventable and treatable ailments as a result of not being able to afford health insurance. In the corporate world in America, if you're a female, just go ahead and know you're not going to be paid the same wages as another person who is a male, even though you might have more experience. That's injustice. Racism is still rampant today. People of the Muslim faith are called terrorists in this country. We call people illegal if we don't like the way they came into this country and claim that they take our jobs. We look as foreigners as suspicious. Any given night in America, between 700,000 and 2 million people are living in homelessness. And while we claim to be a people who don't have enough, we keep in mind that a third of the world's population is well-fed, a third of the population is fed sustainably, and a third of the world is starving. 
And we claim not to have enough, but roughly two billion people in this world live on less than $2 a day. Every 20 seconds a child dies of water-related diseases. We waste literally millions of pounds of food every single year. Injustice is running rampant in this world. It's estimated that 20 million people are currently living in bonded slavery. Human trafficking is the third largest world enterprise behind drugs and weapons. And roughly 50% of those trafficked are children. In Africa alone, 14 million children are orphaned by AIDS. Injustice is a reality. And the thing we have to keep in mind about justice is this. It's not relative. As people who live in the richest nation, who live the most secure and comfortable, it's hard for us to see the injustices that take place outside of this world. And so when a bus full of children literally burned to death because of the acts of a terrorist, we don't mourn that. But a celebrity that dies of cancer, it's a national tragedy. That's an injustice. War against terrorism is, 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 is vengeance for the unthinkable acts. And so we, we committed to these wars to seek out these people. And we think that's justice, but we don't consider literally the hundreds of thousands of innocent people that died in that country as a result of that war. And justice isn't relative. When the people of Syria are caught up in the civil war resulting in the death of so many and the displacement of hundreds of thousands of people, it's still unjust even though those people come from a different faith and nationality to us. You see, as the people of God, we must see that unjust acts committed against someone who is Islamic, Russian, Chinese, illegal, transgender, a Democrat or Republican is still an act of injustice in the eyes of God. Justice isn't relative. It is a global thing for the people of God. And what we learn from this text is that God will not stand for injustice. God is serious about keeping up God's end of the covenant. And he looks at Israel and he's like, you failed. You fall short again and again and again. You see, that's the key from this text. God isn't giving Israel no warning and judgment is coming. This is generation after generation that has committed these acts of injustice and God is not going to stand for it. God warns the people. He challenges them to change. And when they don't, punishment has to come. And so look at verse 13. It says, therefore, I be." I will have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing. Because what you have saved, I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use oil. You will crush grapes but not drink wine. You have observed the statues of Omri and the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their tradition. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nation. You see, many of Israel's unjust acts were economic ones. And so that's where Micah hits here. He's saying to the rich, you can save up with your crops and your resources, but it's going to be for nothing. Micah declares that there's going to be this insatiable hunger that's going to be there, that God is going to hit the rich right in their wallets, that he's going to crumble their way of life. When we live unjust lives, we, and when others suffer unfairly, 
that we might gain, we truly will never be satisfied in that. Wealth and comfort puts us on the hamster wheel of desiring more and more, and God is stopping that within their lives. So what does this look like, historically speaking? Well, historically speaking, famine and destruction and disease will hit the crops of the people of Israel, which will suffocate the income of the wealthy. But a more fierce hand is coming. You see, in 722, Assyria will conquer Israel. And the Syrians were so aggressive that they didn't just want to conquer an enemy, but they literally uplifted a common people and displaced them in other parts of their kingdom so that they would never be able to revolt again. And you know who they displaced? They displaced the rich and the wealthy. They were taken from their homes and they were shipped to different places in the Assyrian nation. And then Assyria came and they dominated the land. And this isn't the end of it. In 587 B.C., nearly 400 years after the death of David, David's line will come to an end. Jerusalem will be burned to the ground. Its buildings will be destroyed. Its walls shattered and its temple demolished. The people of God will be forced to exile in Babylon. In chapter 1, verse 9, Michael declares that Israel's wounds are incurable. This is the only way for unfaithful people to learn from what they have done, that they would ever change. And Micah teaches us that when we live unjust lives, there are consequences that we have to deal with in our actions. And this, of course, is a very unpopular message. Because we think that if we simply say we're sorry in life, that there won't be consequences for our actions. (coughs) Excuse me. Again, this isn't a one-time failing of Israel. This is a, a systemic system of injustice. And not only do we not want to deal with the consequences of our mistakes, but then we turn it on God. How often, when consequences come in our life, do we look at God and say, God should not punish. God was unfair in doing this. Or, my favorite, if God was really a loving God, then God wouldn't fill in the blank. Micah teaches us that God will never be unjust, no matter how great our injustice. God is the only one who is fair and right and impartial judge. And God desires to bring us to a better place. But sometimes that means we deal with the consequences of our actions. And when we commit and support acts of injustice in this world, it will come back on us full forward. And that's what Israel faces. And so what is the answer? How do we break the cycle of injustice in our lives? How do we not support injustice in our lives? Where do we begin? How do we stand against it in this world? Well, Micah gives us the answer in verse 8. What did he say? He says, Micah declares this. He says, you must act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's where you begin. Because justice begins with God. God is the one who defines justice. God is the one who ushers justice in this world. God is the father of all mercies. Psalm 89 declares this, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. You see, justice and mercy are two powerful lifestyles that we cannot learn on our own. We can't read a book, listen to a podcast, and the next day we we learn justice in our life. What Micah is teaching us here is it comes by that daily walk with God, that humble walk in our life where we listen to God, we learn from God, (coughs) we walk with God. This harkens back to the idea of the writers of Deuteronomy. You remember that passage? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. What did it say? 
Take these commands I give to you and press them on your children. Talk about them when you walk along the road. Bind them to your hands and to your foreheads and your arms. Write them on the door frames of your house. The idea is that for us to learn justice and mercy in our life, that we have to daily journey with God. Daily we learn from the one who teaches us what it means to be just, what it means to have mercy within us. This is a special month for Americans. It's called No Shave November. Jeremy, you're already well ahead of us in that field. (laughs) The goal of No Shave November is to grow awareness by embracing our hair, uh, to remember those who lose their hair as a result of cancer, and then instead of the money you would spend on grooming, you donate that money towards different cancer funds. Anybody want to grow a mustache with me this month? I don't either. I just, I can't do it. Yeah. Last month was Breast Cancer Awareness Month, so we we adorned ourselves in pink to remember those who have fought bravely against the fight of cancer. February is is Black History Month. March is a big month for St. Baldrick's. We are a culture that's aware of so many things in this world. But there is a huge difference between being aware of something and actually being involved in those things. Are we in love with the idea of changing this world and the injustices that happen? Or are we actually willing to roll up our sleeves and get to work to fight against injustice? See, it begins with walking humbly with your God. But as we walk humbly with God, God teaches us what it means to act justly. We see the difference between justice and injustice. We might be able to take that first step into understanding how God defines that in this world. And yet we must take action. We must be living sharers as God's people of what God desires for this world. <coughs> and not only do we seek justice and equality for all people, but, but what does the scripture says? It says we love mercy. It's the, the, the Hebrew word used there is hesed. It's, it's the word that means mercy, love, loyalty, and faithfulness all bound up in one. It's the word the Hebrews use to describe a love between a husband and a wife. Uh, between the love that God has for humanity. That's what Micah says. We must love mercy. We must be loyal to mercy. We must extend that in this world. And so justice must be tempered by love. Justice must be defined by love. Justice must be defined by mercy. It's love that goes deeper than any understanding. It's a love that looks at someone who striked you on your cheek and you say, do you want to hit the other also? That is love. That is justice. That is mercy that has to be defined by God. The great Harper Lee put it this way. Love is the only thing in this world that is unequivocal. Are we willing to live that type of love and justice in our life? And so today is the first conversation of eight more conversations around justice. About looking at the different forms of inhumanity and injustice within this world. And as the people of God, choosing to first walk humbly with God, to then act in justice and to love mercy. We all want to see a better world. We all want to live in a place where all people, no matter their faith or story or background, can be a person who lives into the light and story that God desires for them. That's the justice that God desires for this world. But are you willing to be participants in it? Are you willing to begin by walking humbly with God and then learning what it means to live a just life? By the grace of God, may we follow Jesus who invites us and to learn in the ways of God.